to link up. And I should probably share the link on Twitter for people as well. I try and avoid Twitter as much as possible for uh, yeah. unhealthy Super. habits of... Uh, uh, yes, you're on YouTube time. anyway, I see. Yeah. Yeah, so um, I stre streamed the conversation out on YouTube, and then I'll put it up as a in, in like audio podcast form uh, as we go. So live now, and it just means there's like a chat as well on the YouTube video, so people sort of ask questions and things as, yeah. as we go along. Okay. Um, so yeah, I'm live now then with Reverend Professor Keith Ward, the first Reverend Professor. Is that the correct? I hope I've not got that wrong. That I would do. Yes, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> the, the first reverend professor that I've I've interviewed on here. Um, I've had a few professors. I might have had one or two reverends, but never both. So, <laughs> um, and are, are you currently teaching um, philosophy or theology at the moment? I am. I'm teaching at Roehampton University in London. Yeah. Okay. And and so your your background um, and your career has been spent in uh, philosophy and and theology. Um, yeah. And I think. You've given the um, is it the Gifford lectures at Saint yeah, Andrews? Or... Yes. Yeah. Before so and you're an idealist as well, which is um... very unusual. Yes. <laughs> but also a, a position that I also um, flirt with or hold. You know, like I'm kind of skeptical of my knowledge about metaphysics overall, but a, a position that I'm certainly sympathetic with at, at the least. And in that uh, case, yes, I'm an idealist. <laughs> And I guess um, you've also written books about um, coming out of like a fundamentalist version of Christianity towards um, the, the the kind of Christianity that you're in now. So yes. I thought that yeah. would, all of this would sort of act as a good platform for us to have a, a conversation about some things. Um, yeah, right. So I guess, I, guess um, I, I have questions about your own personal sort of beliefs and things, but I also um, almost am, am curious as to whether you can sort of convince me um, of Christianity again in some way, you know, like I, like I want it to be true in some in some sense. But <laughs> yeah. I found I found myself sort of coming into an, an agnosticism over the over the past uh, year. Yeah. Or so. yeah. Um, could could you describe um, what your sort of relationship was with like a more fundamentalist version of Christianity and oh, right. how you come out? Okay. Uh, I well, I was never technically a fundamentalist, but I was. Uh, converted to Christianity from atheism by a group of people, most of whom were fundamentalists, and I'm still friendly with uh, many of them. Uh, and uh, but I I always thought that that wasn't for me really because uh, mostly because of uh, I was already uh, involved in academic philosophy, and so I naturally saw texts, all sorts of texts, including the Bible and philosophers and Plato and everybody else with a certain critical distance. So I was never uh, inclined to say, this has to be totally right in every detail. And I think people I call fundamentalists do that. They say, oh, the Bible has to be correct in all its details. And I've never had that view. I was never attracted to it, but it, I was converted to a sense of the living presence of Christ really, or God as expressed in the person of Jesus. So, so that was a, a definite religious experience, um, which didn't, for me, involve a great lot of doctrinal baggage. I mean, it's just the experience of uh, right. uh, personal presence, which I identified as Jesus, uh, and uh, uh, everything else remained to be worked out, really. So 
I keep in contact with my fundamentalist friends, but I've, as I say, never been really attracted to the view that there's some infallible source of knowledge which could stop you thinking. So, so I suppose uh, um, I, I almost find myself in a in a similar position, um, but almost like um, an, a non-realist type of Christianity, where okay, oh, the, yeah. the experience and is real, or the community, or however my my mind conceives of the world, like religion is an aspect, or but yeah. it's te- tethering that to any metaphysics out there, or and you've written a book. Um, combating i suppose don cubit cupid's non-realism and i was wondering how is it that you actually tether that then to like say well christianity when i'm saying christianity is true or um god yep. exists or something it's not it's more than this subjective um experience yeah that's right well that's where philosophy comes into it i mean i think basically the the main argument today in in philosophy is whether a materialistic view is true so everything comes down to the firing of neurons in the brain and ultimately quarks or super strings or whatever the latest thing is um, and that's a materialistic view it all somehow reduces that that's what causes things to happen and the opposite is an idealist view um, which i always held philosophically apart from religion and the idealist view is the consciousness and a sense of value of something as being worth more than others, and a sense of purpose that, that people act for a reason in order to get something, that these are very important features of reality. And so your ultimate account of reality must include consciousness, purpose, and value. And the materialist finds it very difficult, and I think impossible to do that. It, it, they just don't mesh, really. Um, so as a philosopher, uh, I'm in a minority, I agree, in the philosophical community at the moment, but I'm in a huge majority, historically speaking, that um, almost all classical philosophers have thought that mind is at the basis of reality, that consciousness, purpose, and value, uh, and that matter is somehow an expression of mind or a, a, an overflow of, of some sort from mind. Um, so I stand in that very long but now unfashionable tradition. So I've got no problems. I mean, um, about thinking about uh, the basis of reality being mind-like. Mm. Right? So I'm prepared, you know, apart from experience, I've got this belief um, that uh, uh, religious exchanges is a possibility. It's, you haven't gone mad, it's a possible thing. So when it happened, it wasn't a great surprise. Right. Uh, perhaps, I've never had the experience without the metaphysics. That's what I'm saying. I, I, but perhaps correct me then if if I'm speaking um, imprecisely or my my thinking's gone wrong. But for me, um, may, maybe I'm I'm caught up in a kind of subjective idealism or something where I'm saying so. So all I've got is maybe maybe my percepts and the way that I order the world uh-huh. and reality. But then. What that that makes um, God or being or or any any of the things that I experience very difficult to say what they are in that you know like I I can yeah. I can't take my mind off and experience the world as it is in, in order to to say oh well well that um, religious experience thing exists out beyond uh, human minds and experience okay um, is yeah how am I, how, am I going wrong there how do I deviate well I don't think you have to worry about that I mean we. Uh... If you start from experience, that a lot of philosophers, I mean, the most famous one in Britain who taught me longer was Asia Air, Freddie Air, uh, A Y E R, that is, in case 
you don't know my pronunciation. Um, um, Freddie Eyre was a logical positivist, and he thought all all our knowledge derives from sense data, from just sense experiences. We construct the public world uh, as and the world of science as a construction out of these fundamental experiences. Now he then had the problem that you have mentioned that all the experiences that I know about are mine. So how on earth do I get to a public world? Um, well, that is a philosophical question, and we talk about that in philosophy classes, of course. But uh, even there, I admitted that, of course, there were other minds. I mean, you didn't really seriously doubt that. So however you work it out, um, person, the fact that something is a personal experience doesn't entail that it's not an experience of a reality, okay? And you probably do want to say, it's an appearance of reality. It's not the real thing. I mean, if you see me, you're, you're seeing an appearance of me, but you're not seeing my thoughts and uh, you're hearing them, but even then you might not understand them or you might not understand the language or something. So there's a hidden dimension to all our perceptions. So I think there's not a big gulf between subjective perception and objective appearance. And I would say, well, God is just another objective appearance. I mean, what we see of God or experience of God is not the God in itself. I mean, the absolute thing. It is how that reality appears to us with our cognitive faculties. So I don't think that's a particular problem. And if you can get to the public world from your subjective experience and to other, other minds, which you never experience yourself, um, why not God? It's not a bigger problem. Well, maybe it it my my reasoning goes something like um you know that so so say like fit physical objects or something that there are good yeah. um inferential reasons for me to to sort of react to them so you know like if if a if a truck's coming my way and i pull out sort of thing um that that i, I can make an inference about the existence of that thing because yeah. my, it's going to radically influence my perceptions but almost I don't know, maybe it's almost like morality in a sense, um, where you can sort of say, see that there's so much disagreement perhaps between people, or you can, you know, like disagreement between religious, yeah. even, or even theological conceptions of um, yeah. religious experiences and things is how there, there are some things that it seems it's more difficult to say um, the appearance of them is veridical or not. And, and religious experience seems to be one of those things where, um, you know, if the music's right and the lighting's right, say someone can have a religious or um, psychedelic drugs or something like that, someone might have a religious experience. This isn't to say that they don't exist, but maybe to reduce my confidence in my ability to say, well, that's a veridic, that's one that's tethered to the being, and this is one that's tethered to, um, you know, like human uh, chemistry or something like uh, in the in the brain or something. Yeah. Is there a way you think we can approach that or tackle that? Uh, well, I think it's maybe you're making too big a distinction between religious experience as though you could identify exactly what that is and say artistic experience when you listen to a great piece of music or see a great painting mm -hmm. or if you fall in love and you have that sort of experience and all sorts of experiences i would call the ones we're interested in in religion transcendent experiences or experiences of something transcendent that is something beyond and somehow of greater value than what we can see, but we experience it through our sense experiences. 
so if I fall in love with another person, uh, there's something there apart from just my sense impressions of them. Uh, and I believe that I'm in uh, a particular experiential intense relationship with them. Um, if I say, is that real? Well, yes, it's real. Um, is it? Is it mutual? Well, that's more difficult to tell, but we still assume it often is. I mean, if you if you have a relationship with somebody else, you assume, you hope uh, that they were having the same sort of experience. So I, I think experiences of all sorts, mostly, mostly experiences of love, of personal friendship, and experiences of beauty, uh, and experiences of making new discoveries, of understanding things, of experiences of truth, have a transcendent dimension where we're experiencing more than just the sense impressions that we're getting. You know, we're interpreting those impressions as impressions of a reality which is greater than us, and we're trying to understand. And, and we can have a, a, an intense feeling relationship with, as when you you know um, read a great work of literature or something like that. So I, I wouldn't say religious experience is particularly different. It's a, it's a one of those experiences of transcendence, and it's very closely related to moral experiences. Experiences like I've got to do this. I don't know why. I just have to do it. I have to give up my time and money to help somebody in need. And you're saying, well, I, I just have to do that. Well, what's that have to? It's that sort of experience which is near to a religious one. So I suggest religion's not that different, really. We just don't like the word these days. <laughs> for, for, for good reasons, for good reasons. Yeah. Pre presumably, though, um, you know, there are some religious experiences pe people might have that would lead to a deity which would be mutually exclusive with that of Christianity. Is that, or maybe perhaps we're religious pluralists and we have a different view. How, how do we kind of deal with that? You know, the the yeah. Mormon uh, burning in the bosom versus the kind of Hindu um, experience of, of Krishna or what? Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, that's a bit like saying, how do you deal with a difference between people who find Wagner supremely life changing and people who think he's a lot of rubbish? <laughs> And, and they might find in Bach something absolutely wonderful and beautiful. People do have different approaches to life. And a Buddhist, a Buddhist, for example, wouldn't be attracted by the notion of a personal God because Buddhism doesn't really center on the notion of a continuing person. In fact, a central Buddhist doctrine is there is no self. So God wouldn't appeal if you start from there. Uh, Christians tend to start from a Jewish background of, of one creator of the universe. And so Christians tend to think, oh, personality is very important. So you're starting with different presuppositions. So starting, it's not uh, odd that you will give different interpretations to your experiences. So what you experience depends on your culture, your history, what you've been taught, how you've reacted to what you've been taught. All those things come together and help you to interpret. So right, God, the word God, is an interpretation of a certain set of experiences of transcendence. Right. But there are other words people could use. You could use a word like nirvana, enlightenment, liberation, um, unity with the self of all. I'm selecting a few from different faith traditions there. Uh, you don't have to call it God. 
Right. So again, uh, God has a huge background of philosophy and uh, reflective thought, and there are quite a lot of different things you'd have to think through before you would call your experience God. I'd be happy if somebody said, I've experienced a transcendent, commanding, beautiful, attracting reality. Uh, and I don't know what to call it. I'd be happy if somebody said that. And would, would, would it be right to say then that you're, you're su sort of suggesting that um, a lot of these different cultural experiences, God is standing behind, the, the same being is standing behind them in a sort of perennialist uh, philosophy of... Yeah, I'm not a perennialist, which is okay. a particular um, view of that uh, sure. there's okay. one truth in all faiths. I, I don't really think that. I think lots of people's views are actually wrong. I mean, as an idealist, I think materialists are all wrong. Right? But I understand why they believe what they believe, and indeed I used to be one, so I do I know what it's like. Um, it's the same with religion. I mean, not all religious views could be true, and it's a very tricky area to work in. It gets very complicated. And for most people, they're not going to get involved in these sorts of arguments. But if you're a philosopher, the funny thing about being a philosopher is you like disagreement. So if I, as a professor of philosophy, have a student who disagrees with me, I think, oh, that's great. I don't think, oh, this is a tragedy. They're, they're going to hell. <laughs> I don't think that. I say, it's great that they've got original ideas. Let's cultivate that and let's, let's see where it goes. And then we can interact and discuss what it is that makes us have different interpretations. But the philosophical life is one which is always self-critical, but always interested in different creative approaches and for me it's exactly the same in religion and um, the tragedy is that not all religious people seem to know that <laughs> so so let's say for for me personally and oh sorry sorry i was getting a bit of feedback through the air thing so for, for me personally um i I, let's say I have these religious experiences and I accept they're a feature of my uh, experience of reality as a human being. So yeah. I decide I want to be part of a community or uh, an ecclesial right. community of some sort. But then I, yeah. you know, I, I go and I, um, the service is, is all well and nice. But then afterwards, um, we're having the, the coffee and biscuits. And, you know, the first person talks to me about um, how evolution is false. And then the second oh. person talks to me about how all their kids don't believe. So they're going to hell. And the third person, you know, and, and I start thinking, hang on, what what, what am I, I, I a part of here? What am I? Um, how, you know, like, like, how, how should people who are, who are, maybe more open to or, or less dogmatic um, de deal with being part of like an ecclesial community, like, like Christianity, how, how can you deal with um, that kind of theological disagreement where people think they have the absolute truth on this particular issue that is of eternal significance? Or... Oh, yes, tell them they're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> or you go to a different church. I mean, I've been a minister, uh, a pastor in the Church of England for 50 years. I've never in all that time met anybody in any of the churches I've served in who has held beliefs like the ones you just mentioned. I just okay. haven't met them. Um, now, I know that my fundamentalist friends, the people who converted me in the first place, might have said things like evolution is wrong. And I just have to say, well, look, you should learn more biology. That's all. It's not a religious question, basically. Why, why do you have to think that? 
uh, and it's a bit of a mystery to me why they do have to think that. Um, but that's something to do. But as I say, most uh, it's entirely false to say most Christians believe this. I mean, um, they don't. Uh, I, I don't meet them in my everyday life. Most Christians don't think a lot about it properly. They just somehow let evolution and God go along together, but they don't try and work out how. And it can be a bit tricky. But but there's there's no difficulty, and I mean um, the man who just won the Templeton Prize, which is a million pounds, um, uh, is uh, called Francis Collins, right. and he's one of the major biologists in the world. He's the, was the presidential scientific advisor and one of the um, first people who. Uh, deciphered DNA, the structure of DNA, and he's quite an evangelical Christian and runs a big organization called BioLogos. Now, I recommend that. Somebody who says to me in a church, uh, evolution is all wrong, I'd say, well, you ought to look up the website BioLogos and you'll see that a lot of most intelligent uh, uh, biologists who are Christian have no difficulty in believing those things. But as so, it's the same with the Bible. You say, why do you why do you not take a, a more critical approach to the Bible? It was written over hundreds of years. It was written by lots of different people with different opinions. It records lots of uh, history, which is probably made up. Um, and uh, why shouldn't you say that? What, what's your problem? So <laughs> that's that's what I would think. What's the problem? Yeah. What matters is, are you? in touch with the reality which makes your life more morally committed and more psychologically stable and which helps you to aim for the good of all sentient life and for the good of a planet if you're not then i don't care if you've got a church or not I, i'm just not interested in you <laughs> but if you are then i'd say well good that that's what all good religion is about there's bad religion but that's what Jesus was about, and that's what uh, even Karl Marx said that. He didn't like religion, but he liked Jesus a lot. So, you know, talk to the right people, I think, if you can find them. Well, I mean, uh, right people, the ones who agree with me, of course. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so. I, I suppose for um, a, a lot of the sort of um, ty types of um, Christians that, that I might be referring to with, the, with those kinds of beliefs, a, a big motivating factor as well would be this, um, this idea of how, you know, like, um, I don't know if you, if you ever watched, uh, Louis, Louis Theroux's, um, documentary where he went to the Westboro Baptist church. I know that obviously oh, isn't yeah. represented, <laughs> uh, but, yeah. but, you know, like the big, the biggest thing, um, amongst people who go that front is this, this fear of this absolute horrible kind of do you take the same sort of view of eternal conscious torment uh, as it applies to how or do you take some other absolutely stuff? not no uh the first point the word hell never appears anywhere in the bible secondly uh jesus of course talked about <clears throat> judgment and jesus talked about uh, as reformative punishment i'd say reformative punishment but jesus never talked about long-lasting hell he said that uh, actually god is totally forgiving and that god is a god of unlimited love now that's what i believe 
So if I believe that's what Jesus taught, that's what I'm going to think. And now what would a God of unlimited love do? Would he say, well, I love you so much. I'm going to torture you forever. Uh, no, it just doesn't make sense. I cannot understand why people believe in hell. I really can't. If God is love, uh, then there's no everlasting hell. There can be judgment because if people set themselves against love, if they hate other people, kill them, destroy them, torture them, then they have to face up to some way of them coming into terms with that. And you could call that, as Jesus did, being cast into outer darkness or into a purifying fire. That's a rather nasty image. But remember, Daniel in the lion's den came out of the fire unscathed. So it's not all that horrible. I mean, Jesus taught in images. That's where fundamentalists go wrong, I think. They don't see the Bible as full of images. God rides on the clouds. God sits on a throne. God judges and even turns people into sheep and goats, apparently. Mm. Sheep go one way, goats go another. And those are just images. They're images of something real. <clears throat> so I'd say this, and I really believe this. I've studied the Bible for years. I can't find anywhere in it talk about an unending torture from which you cannot escape. I think that repentance is always possible. People do have to repent. That is to say, they have to learn to love. They have to learn to accept the love of God. And that might, for them, be painful. Um, that's true. But there's always the possibility, like the prodigal son, there's always the possibility of coming back to God. Uh, so that's my Christ That's why I'm a Christian. Um, if I believed in hell, I wouldn't be a Christian. Would it be right to kind of put that in the category of universalism then? Uh, this, this view? Yes, yes, it would. Uh, but I, I'm not saying that everybody goes to heaven, to the presence of God, whatever they're like. Yes. Uh, I think they would have to change. I'm just saying it is possible for everyone to change. And, and I would pray <laughs> that everyone will change. Uh, I don't know how long it will take. I don't know how it will be done, but God's got time. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, I agree with, actually, you will be surprised to hear this. I agree with Pope John Paul II, who said in a book that he wrote, um, he said, we are not bound to believe, we are not, uh, we cannot guarantee, he said, we cannot guarantee that everyone will be saved but we should certainly pray for it. Right. So he was a universalist in some rather weak sense. Hmm. And so am I. Right. And so when, I, I suppose some um, Christians might want to raise certain passages in the Bible, you know, maybe Luke 16 and the Lake of Sulphur, or you you mentioned the sort of um, the, the sheep and the goats and... Um, yeah. Yeah. So how 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 do you deal would you say that it's it's a misinterpretation of, of reading the scripture in that way um, absolutely yes absolutely um sheep and the goats well first of all i mean there's nothing about faith in that if you read that carefully the sheep and the goats the last judgment people are judged on whether they visit the sick give clothes to the, those who have no clothes uh visit those who are ill i mean that's that's who is a sheep 
<laughs> they go to the people who say lord lord but actually don't give food to the hungry and don't care about other people faith is never mentioned so that's the first thing it's actually you know going to shock a lot of christians <laughs> that uh, that's not a matter of faith and then secondly it ends off of course with the one place in the gospels where it has been translated in the authorized version as eternal punishment and this is this ion uh the the word yes colassin aeonios which colassin is punishment and aeonios is for an aeon so you could they translated it in the authorized version as uh, everlasting punishment that's really you don't have to translate it that way and you shouldn't for a start colassin punishment is if it's god of love who's doing the punishing and remember jesus died for people he, did, he didn't just kill them um punishment is reformative the, the purpose of punishment is reform so it is punishment yes it is de deprivation of the supreme good but it's it's in order to reform and of course the word aeonios which is like for an aeon you know for for, for a time for an age the word is age doesn't mean forever at all um for example we talk about the age of enlightenment right or the age of steam or the age of victoria it's an indefinite period of time uh, so what colassen what that phrase colassen ionio actually could be translated as it quite properly i think is there'll be a reformative punishment um which lasts as long as necessary to get you reformed. Right. I really think that. I mean, and uh, uh, there's no reason why you should translate it any other way. You've, it's got to be compatible. It's got to be, it's got to mean what the words say, of course, I agree with that. But it's got to be compatible with God being a God of love and compassion and mercy. I suppose um, that there's almost an, an epistemological question there of how, you know, where, say we're faced with two, two Christians with these competing theological interpretations. How, okay. how do we get to the right one, you know, like, or, and, and does this mean something like the Catholic church actually almost has more authority or um, there, there's so much kind of in there for, for someone like me, who's thinking, well, I, I kind of like what, um, what Keith Ward's saying here, but um, am I going to agree with him just because I like that? Whereas I, I can see what the Calvinists saying over here, you know, maybe it's just uh, yeah, like, yeah. How, how do we yeah. tell the difference? Well, again, I'll go back to my philosophical background. How do you tell who's right? You've got Plato and Kant and uh, Locke and Hume. You've got loads of people. They all disagree with each other. So how do you tell which is right? Well, okay, that's a complicated question, but philosophers don't lose a lot of sleep about that actually <laughs> they say these are all creative human expressions of opinion i find some of them more adequate to my interpretation experience than others and i can use those to extend my own appreciation but there's no reason why i should take just one of them and say he is totally right so plato got it all right the rest of philosophy is a waste of time there's no reason you should say that so I want to get as broad a view as possible. It's the same in religion. Mm. The difficulty is we haven't got time for all this, you know, really. So, so the thing to do is just get into a 
community in pop along there and you know one thing i found is in most churches i've i've served in churches of all different sorts within they've all been episcopalian anglican but up and down the candlestick you know all sorts of different things and i've always found that when you talk to people individually in those congregations most people don't believe the creeds that they're supposed to believe right they don't believe all the things they're supposed to believe, but they don't talk about it because they don't want to offend the vicar right right so there's a lot of stuff that people are talking about and i think in churches people ought to be more open about their doubts and and follow the path of philosophy say doubts are good i mean that, that's that's not a bad thing what matters is you're committed in practice to love, to mercy, to compassion, to receiving from God help, if, or from wherever you get but, uh, but the intellectual problems, they're real, but you know, they're, they're not, they shouldn't keep you awake at nights because the great, knowledgeable, experienced people have differed on these things, and you're not going to get the truth. Even I, I have to confess, I'm not going to get the truth. I'm doing the best I can. And that's what you can say. This is my philosophy. I've written in books. Nobody reads them. That's okay. So you say, what? who is right? I'm afraid you just have to say, you do your best to be true to your understanding. Luckily, these days, because of things like this, people can broaden their understanding and get lots of different views and that will have its own effect on them. But in the end, it matters. Be true to what you really think. But keep criticizing yourself. Yeah, no, I appreciate those answers. Um, I, just being wary of time, then I'll go into some questions from the audience that we've had okay. uh, coming in throughout. Um, so one of the first questions then was, uh, some people don't feel a transcendent nature to their experiences of love or, or philosophy. Uh, how can we tell if the experiences are actually transcendent uh, or indicating or not? Right. As a perfectly decent question. And of course, uh, I would really like to take a long time, but I won't. So I'll just say <laughs> it's like saying, how do I know? that torturing children is wrong. Because I, I know people who torture children. I mean, that's difficult, but they're in prison. But I mean, I know people who do. They don't think it's wrong. Right. So how do I deal with that? Well, I just said, well, uh, I've got to stop them doing it. <laughs> and yeah. I've got to say, uh, they're really badly mistaken. So again, uh, there's no proof that you, you, you can't prove anything in morality. You, you say, well, you ought not to torture children, but you, you can't prove that. You, you appeal to a person's sensitivity. You think that you're as sensitive as you can be, but, but you can't show that. So at the end of the day, I might be wrong, but even if I'm wrong, I'll be, I, I think that I've tried my best to find out what is true. Uh, and I don't think you can say more than that. I mean, we're in a world of probabilities, not certainties. And I think religious people have to accept that. And non-religious people, uh, plenty of non-religious people who are certain. <laughs> um, and I think people have to say, well, I'm, I'm not actually certain. I commit myself to this because it seems most adequate to me. So it's a slightly complicated answer, but the truth is, um, 
you know when you're ignoring evidence and you know when you're making things up, but you never know when you've actually got something right. Even a great scientist, you know, perhaps Einstein was wrong. Perhaps. I don't think so, you know. And I'm not qualified to say whether he was wrong or not. But uh, it's it's just a very interesting and uh, awesome uh, opinion. Uh, we're stuck with that. Great. Um, and so the next question then was, wouldn't it have been quite something if God had revealed evolution to the writers of the Bible? Uh, isn't the silence deafening? Uh, well, yeah, well, God didn't reveal to the writers of the Bible that there were stars beyond the Milky Way. I mean, uh, that's just life. Uh, people didn't know that the Earth was going around the sun. I mean, loads of things God could have said. By the way, I'll tell you the theory of relativity that will save a lot of time. Uh, you have to be a little bit realistic about it and say, if there is a transcendent reality which is attracting you towards greater moral commitment it's not going to just wipe out all your opinions and give you new ones that's a very sort of uh, well it's a very strange view of revelation you know all right god could have just given somebody the truth but then the world isn't like that you've got Islam, you've got Buddhism, you've got Hinduism, you've got Christianity. God has not just given somebody the truth and stopped anybody else believing anything else, which God, in theory, could have done. Some kind of God could have done that. It's not the kind of God I believe in. So, as, as I said, God is the word we use for talking about it, transcendent experiences of the most morally eminent things that we can imagine. But it is our imagination at work. We, but as in mathematics, which is a very close analogy, we hope that our imagination brings us nearer to, to the truth. You know, we make up mathematical theorems. We just make them up. But we don't say, oh, that just shows they're, they're not true. We hope that what we make up is true. And so I think religion is like that. It's made up, but it's aiming at truth. Mm. I, I suppose what one thing I often see in um, these these discussions is a, is a difficulty between telling um, you know the the what's going on in in the way we represent the world and reality um, in itself, like like the ha yeah. and how can we tell the difference between that? Like for example, right. um, I I would have thought there are no you know like all triangles have interior angles of 180 degrees but it turns out if you draw a triangle on a curve it, you know the the convex size ha, ha, has more or less um con the concave yeah. size and um yeah i i guess it's like so how can we tell the difference between the way we're representing the world and it isn't it like is is there a a point at which we would go um this just seems too much like the product of you or what what would be the marks in something like the bible that would make us think well this is you know we can we can see these cultures and things in here but but that there's really some kind of like there's a more important meta truth behind the the overarching yeah. narrative or something what? i suppose it's that uh if you if you tend to think um that there is some sort of moral demand really in the world somehow, and you you 
puzzle around how this could be, given that it's sort of a load of just matter. How could there be something which is really a moral divine? And could, could there be a fulfillment of the of purpose in human life? You have questions like that. Um, and you make a fundamental commitment to the best thing that you can think of, the most morally acceptable, the most life enhancing, the most psychologically stabilizing, um, then that's all human beings can do. I mean, there are no absolute answers to that question. If you get a, as you go through life, you think, am I doing the right thing in my life? Nobody's, there's no way of knowing. Mm. You just commit yourself and you commit yourself to the best that you can conceive. What goes wrong is that some people don't care about the best. They just want to make a lot of money or they want to dominate other people. Uh, and they can say, well, that's a fundamental choice about the way your life is. That's a fundamental option. And I think religion at its best is like that. It's a fundamental option for, for that which is supremely good and which helps you to be better. And if it's not that, you shouldn't believe it. Um, but if you find there's something like that in your experience, I think that you might have been in a church, but it's it's already a sort of re religious mm -hmm. commitment. It's a commitment to what I call transcendence anyway. And then religion claims, different religions claim different interpretations of what that transcendence is like. I suppose people go for the easy answers, like God has revealed this and it's true because life is too complex to think about, <laughs> okay. But I, I'd rather take the view complexity is good and we aren't very clever. Uh, we've just got, it's like taking a five-year-old and showing them Fermat's last theorem and saying, how do you decide whether this is true? what would you say to them you say well i'm afraid you can't probably <laughs> but uh, there are people you know who have a better idea and maybe if you were religious you might say oh, jesus was one of them <laughs> okay i would say that yeah so one of the questions then um that is perhaps a good follow-on uh from from what you were just saying there is how or in what way can we experience this uh transcendent mind I think in many ways, uh, we just don't necessarily call it that. We might have reasons for not thinking there could be such a thing. Um, but again, I don't think religious experience is necessarily very unusual. I think it's just you, you it, it's the feeling that you're not alone, as it were, that in the world, you're, you're, um, you're actually um, communicating with a reality which is mind-like, which is not alien to you. We're not stuck in a mechanical or alien universe. There's something that resonates with our personality. Um, but that's that's a belief position, but it it's not irrational. So I I would think, honestly, now, uh, as a philosophical position, materialism, there's no transcendent, there's no God, is a rational position to take. But so is idealism that mind is the basis of reality. How do you decide which of those is true? We know that different people make different decisions. So I would say in the end, what matters is are two things, honesty and morality. You've got to aim at the good and you have to aim at truth. 
and if you do that, uh, that's that's the lead that you've got, and you have to follow. And then don't agonize too much about it. <laughs> okay. So, uh, um, so, so oh, I'm getting a bit, bit of feedback sometimes, uh, not always. So, um, someone asking an, another question for the professor, uh, can differing metaphysical theories be tested empirically, uh, such as idealism slash realism? No, I'm afraid not. No, they can't. No. Um, you get, if you're in one of those systems, you can find empirical facts which seem to you to confirm them. They're self-confirming. But really, um, no, no. Uh, I mean, many of my friends in philosophy are materialists, and um, th there's no empirical way of deciding that. But there's no empirical way of deciding any moral question either, really. If you say, well, if you do this, it'll hurt people, then you might reply, so what? And you know, there's nothing you can do about that. You, we have to just accept that uh, the big questions in life are not empirically decidable. Um, and then uh, from the, the same person has asked if you've got a favorite uh, argument for God's existence. A favorite? <laughs> um, I think the one that impresses me most is just the sheer organization and complexity of biological life. I mean, it just strikes me that uh, without great sophisticated arguments about it, to think that uh, from the Big Bang and uh, just infinite mass and energy and nothing else, you've got a world of um, complicated, loving, thinking beings. The universe could come to know its own nature and change it to some extent. I think that's such an incredible um, view of the world that I would say immediately, it looks to me as though there's some sort of purpose here. And the purpose is not unclear. It is the development of greater consciousness and ability to be creative. Uh, and those, that seems to me the strongest argument. It's an argument from the integrated complexity of nature. Great. Um, and then a last question then, um, which is, um, could you describe the difference between subjective idealism and objective idealism? Well, there are all sorts of idealism, really. And I suppose subjective idealism is, uh, is the view that uh, you're confined to your own experiences and your own ideas. Um, and that is so unrealistic because we all talk to other people. Here I am talking to you, and then the idea this is just my ideas, so arguing with themselves it just seems unrealistic. Objective idealism uh, the big, you know, most idealists don't need to believe in God. Uh, they do believe in something mind like, but a Buddhist, for example, you could be a pure mind Buddhist. And you could say, yes, the nature of reality is in some sense mental, in some sense. Um, and you wouldn't have to call it God. So you need some more arguments there. But um, yeah, but objective idealism in short is just, yes, everything is mind produced, but there is a mind other than mine. And there is a supreme mind, which I call the mind of God, and that produces the whole of the physical 
world. That, that's a form of objective idealism, which I think is obviously true. Why do people not agree with me? I don't know. <laughs> but I know they don't. Right. So um, for people who want to kind of see more of your stuff, is there any, anywhere that people can kind of um, uh, re read? Is there something you're working on at the minute that you want people to be made aware of? Or um... Well, I'm hmm, uh, probably the most successful book, which I like, I wrote it years ago, is called God, A Guide for the Perplexed. I, I still quite like that. Uh, one of my most recent ones is called Sharing in the Divine Nature. I think Christians might like that one. Um, a rather allegedly humorous one is called Confessions of a Recovering Fundamentalist. From today's talk, anybody would see I've recovered quite a lot. Um, but uh, the book is really sort of theology in jokes right it's 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 it's, it's a very good humored approach uh, and i've got a website which is just keithward.org uk okay then. and that's my life <laughs> is there anything you're working on at the minute or yes and i'm writing a book on um, the parables of jesus oh, okay That'll yeah interesting yeah, but they are interesting, really, because you, if you want to get out uh, what Jesus was saying, he taught in parables, so what was he really saying? And although there are hundreds of books about the parables, there's room for just one more. The, the best interpretations by Augustine, of course, uh, always. Uh, actually, his interpretations are very, very peculiar. I mean, yeah. they use all sorts of analogies, which are, which are very strange. Uh, but he's not a literalist. Augustine never believed in literal things like the world being created in six days. He never believed that for a minute. But if you read what he did say about that, it's very odd. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, um, I really appreciate your time and you coming on. Um, okay. And thank you, everyone, for watching. Um, I'll end the stream there. Okay.